Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 27, The World at War, Again, Part 2. Last time, we started talking about the Adventist Church during the Second World War, as you might have guessed from the title, from the sinking of the SS Zamzam in the Atlantic to the evacuation of Singapore. We talked about how this was, in some ways, the greatest triumph of the Adventist organization as this heavy church hierarchy moved quickly and effectively to safeguard missionaries, to negotiate for the release of prisoners, and to keep its membership well informed. Our stories took us up to about 1942, which really became the year in which things got very serious for those who were caught up in the war. General Conference President James Big Mac McElhaney gave the Sabbath sermon during the 1942 Autumn Council in Cincinnati, Ohio. The council was supposed to be a meeting of the General Conference Committee, but this one turned into a mini General Conference session with union treasurers and conference presidents and evacuated missionaries all invited to attend as well. We noted last time that missionaries were having a celebrity moment. Bruce Hunt, a Presbyterian missionary who had been imprisoned for over 100 days by the Japanese, spoke across town just a few days after the Adventists did. Now, the Adventist missionaries spoke on Sabbath afternoon to great acclaim. Meetings were held at the Hotel Gibson, which was almost as old as Adventism itself, The Gibson was a beautiful building with a thousand rooms, two courtyards, and a special kitchen just for oysters. But that is not where Big Mac showed up to speak on Sabbath. For the Sabbath service, the delegates and local Adventists met at the Taft Auditorium, which could seat 2,500 people. Of course, it was built and owned by the Freemasons, but maybe we shouldn't bring that up. Big Mac greeted the two to 3,000 Adventists who had gathered at the Taft and spoke to the moment. Quote, The church is indeed to be an army thrown into battle. End quote. We must, he went on, quote, go forth fighting the forces of evil in the world and in our own lives. We must have victory. End quote. This was in line with the General Conference's evangelistic emphasis. They wanted, in their words, to launch, quote, the greatest soul-winning effort ever undertaken by the Church of God since the fall of man, end quote. How were they going to do that? First, every pastor and every member was to get involved in evangelism. Second, they had to make use of radio to advertise. Third, lay preachers had to be trained. Fourth, an effort had to be made to reach what they called the rich and cultured classes. You know, as well as the poor and unlearned, their words, not mine, that Adventists typically reached. Now, Big Mac wanted to harness the martial mood and focus that aggression, that that optimism, that desire to ride forth and conquer and use it to fuel Adventist evangelism in 1943. The other side of the evangelistic coin was the need to keep the members the church has already won. This is a huge concern in Adventist churches today. 
The Adventist Church in North America today has lost members over the past 10 years at a rate of 35%. That is, for every 10 members that join the Adventist Church, three and a half people leave. Now, they might be lost to death or discipline or departure or whatever, but it is a demoralizing trend. I mean, how excited do you expect a church to get about the greatest evangelistic effort since the fall of man if you know that a bunch of people are just going to walk out the back door as you are inviting people in the front door? How would you feel if you put 16 gallons of gas in your car and four gallons just leaks out? Now, while it's difficult to know what that turnover trend was in the 1940s, okay, may not have been 35%, may have been, I would imagine, much lower than that, it's clear that the church was aware of this trend and wanted to fix the leak. Still, leaks aside, there was plenty of good news. At the end of 1941, global church membership had just crossed the half million mark. And those half a million Adventists had built 535 schools, sanitariums, and publishing houses. All denominational property was valued at $65 million, or something like a billion dollars today. Adventist publications could be found in 810 languages. It's clear we're counting the little ones there. And even though Adventists were in some cases decades behind other churches in shipping missionaries to places like China, okay? Got a late start in some of these countries. By the Second World War, Adventists had one of the largest Protestant presences in that country. Adventist missionaries had already gone around the world, and Adventist soldiers were going next. In a war known for great humanitarian tragedies, we're going to begin with one of them. The first time the 4,000 or so Westerners on the island of New Britain saw bombers overhead, they knew that they were in trouble. 500 miles off the coast of Australia, the women and children were sent to the mainland, while many of the men stayed behind. Some moved into the jungle, planted gardens when the Japanese arrived. From these hidden bases, they could rescue downed Australian pilots and others. And by the end of the war, these people who hid out in the jungle rescued some 300 people. Now, the Japanese, nevertheless, managed to take about 1,000 prisoners, Australian soldiers and Western missionaries alike, and put them on the Montevideo Maru, a troop and sometimes supply ship, and send them off toward Japan. Unfortunately, eight days into the voyage, an American submarine, the Sturgeon, spotted the Montevideo Maru, confusing it with a Japanese submarine tender that looked very, very similar to it, and fired four torpedoes. Two missed, but two found their mark, and the Montevideo Maru sank in about 10 minutes, killing just about everyone on board, including several Adventist missionaries. It is, is the worst maritime disaster in Australian history, and the greatest single loss of life during the entire war for the Aussies. When news of what was happening in New Britain reached other islands in the region, missionaries began taking that last boat to Australia. In the Solomons, a British major commandeered three Adventist missionary ships and ordered them to evacuate before the Japanese arrived. Didn't want to give the Japanese the ships. One of those ships, the Portal, 
wasn't able to make it into the open ocean. And so the British officer set it on fire and left with the other two ships. The Christian locals on the island were horrified to see one of their beloved missionary ships ablaze and prayed for God to put the fire out. They cried out, the portal belongs to God, do not burn, or something pretty close to that. The fire by now was climbing up the mast, but somehow, in an instant, the fire went out. So the locals grabbed the boat and pushed it into a small creek where they covered it with palm branches so the Japanese wouldn't find it. Not content with merely hiding the boat, the locals dismantled the engine piece by piece. Some of the pieces they wore on their necks like a necklace. Other pieces they buried or they hung on a tree somewhere. There was no way, no way the Japanese were going to find this boat. And if they did find the boat, there was no way they were going to find all the pieces to the engine that the, that the locals had hidden all around the island. It was crazy. And it worked. After the war, when the missionaries returned, they brought out the boat, which the missionaries thought was long gone, right? Because the last thing they heard about it was this British major saying it was on fire. So that's that. So they were shocked when they got back and found out that, uh, that they found the locals bringing the boat out of this creek. And then when they got aboard it, they're like, cool, now we can go visit the little islands and, and, and see what people need and, and, you know, connect with them again. They were dismayed when they saw that the engine was missing. Right? Just, a, uh, just the parts that couldn't be carried and hidden remained. And when the missionaries were wringing their hands about this missing engine, the locals laughed. Wait right here, they said. We'll be right back. Months later, on Guadalcanal, a 29-year-old Avenist named Orville Cox crawled forward under Japanese machine gun fire to bandage two wounded American soldiers and stayed with them under fire the entire time until U.S. soldiers managed to push the Japanese back and recover them. Cox received the Silver Star. Keith Argraves was a paratrooper medic jumping behind enemy lines without a weapon. He was sent on what is called a suicide mission to destroy some of the enemy's supplies and was captured by Erwin Rommel's Africa Corps and sent to a concentration camp. When one American soldier was sent home, probably wounded is my guess, he happened to be visiting a 7th Avenue's home in Maryland. He was shocked to find out that the owners of the home were Adventists and that their son was a medic serving in the war. This soldier who had returned home said, I've only met one other Seventh-day Adventist in my entire life. Sure enough, the Adventist he had met was a medic in the Pacific. As this soldier and this medic's unit was about to assault a Japanese position, the officers were making sure every soldier had enough ammo. This Adventist, whom the returned soldier called Slim, refused to take a pistol. Can I take a stick instead, he asked his officer. Everyone laughed at him, like, come on, man. And the, you know, the officer was, hey, you know what we're going into, right? You need to make sure you have plenty of ammo. Why not just bring a gun to defend yourself? You don't have to use it, but that way you have it just in case you need it. You know, it's like just really trying to work on Slim, really trying to work on this medic to, to let him know what the risks were, right? You carry a stick in there, man, alive, you're going to be in trouble. Haven't you ever thought of that? That's what I always think of when I when I think of these Non, non-combatant Avenist soldiers. And it's like, don't you just, you know, you can carry the gun. You don't have to use it. But they didn't want the temptation. So Slim carried his stick. And as soon as the attack began, a trap took the lives of four American soldiers, wounded four others. Three medics, who had guns, by the way, retreated for cover. But Slim crawled forward, presumably with his stick. 
and he took four trips to rescue the men who were wounded with bullets landing all around him. I mean, every time he went out there for another person, the soldier who had returned to Maryland said, I thought for sure this time he's going to get hit. This time he's going to get hit. I mean, they are getting so close to hitting this guy. And, and, and yet he would bring a guy back behind the lines. He'd go back for another one, bring him back, go back for another one. And so after this soldier in Maryland finished his story, talking about this Avenus medic, he told the couple, quote, if your son is an Avenus medic like Slim, he is a good one. I'd like to meet him, end quote. In France, an allied rifleman lay writhing in agony after he was hit in the neck by some shrapnel from a mortar. Struggling to breathe, a 19-year-old Avenus medic named Dwayne Kinman crawled out to the soldier and with his jackknife, Right, with his pocket knife, performed a tracheotomy, inserting the barrel of a fountain pen into this wounded soldier's neck as a breathing tube. Not only did he do this under fire and with his pocket knife, but he did it so well that when this wounded soldier was carried back to the battalion aid station, the surgeon who was there was shocked, shocked at Kinman's skill and as a result, two universities offered Kinman free pre-medical school after the war because of what he had done. And then, of course, we have Desmond Doss, the most well-known Adventist from the war, the subject of a number of books and films. Now, Hacksaw Ridge, one of those films, might have been a Hollywood blockbuster, but I went to the premiere of a different one, of a documentary called The Conscientious Objector. Maybe you've seen it came out in 2004. The director gave a little talk, and then we watched the movie. Now, I didn't know much about DOS at the time, but I liked World War II, okay? So I showed up. I listened to the director. I watched the documentary. Documentaries are, you know, generally boring. But the subject, Desmond DOS, was fascinating. I didn't know much about DOS at the time. But I was impressed. And then I saw Desmond Doss walk up the center aisle to the stage after the movie. And, and this little guy was wearing a medal of honor around his neck. I'd never seen one before. And I thought, holy cow. I need to learn more about this guy. Doss unfortunately died a couple of years later. But his story has only grown more well-known since then. You can find that story anywhere, okay? Just Google it. Plenty of books, plenty of internet articles about him. But here's the short version in case you're not familiar. Doss and his unit were going to be ordered up Hacksaw Ridge. That was the, the local soldierly term for the place. I think uh, it was known officially as the Maeda Escarpment or something like that. And basically, it was like a small cliff, okay? And, and his unit was going to be ordered up this small cliff to assault an entrenched group, thousands of them, Japanese soldiers. When Able Company had made it to the top, every single one of them had been killed. So Baker Company, which is Doss's company, said, you know what, we're going to climb up somewhere else. <laughs> so they just moved, I think, west a little bit. And they began climbing up. And they managed to keep two platoons up there. But when the Japanese opened fire, over 70 men in Doss's unit were hit, 
and the rest climbed back down, everyone except Doss. Earlier that morning, Doss had held up the entire attack because he insisted on reading his Bible as he always did. And now, he was the only one left at the top. One by one, he found the wounded men and lowered them back down to safety. While thousands of Japanese soldiers watched, taking shots at him whenever they could. And Doss did this, not just a few guys. Doss did this for around 75 men over several days. Yeah. Yeah. He lowered the last one down to safety on Sabbath. And then Desmond Doss rested. A few weeks later, Doss was injured. He waited five hours until someone found him and put him on a stretcher. But as he was being carried back, he saw somebody else, another soldier, more seriously wounded than he was. So Doss rolled off the stretcher and ordered the litter bearers, people carrying the stretcher, to take the other man instead. And while Doss was waiting for them to come back, a sniper shot him in the arm. So Doss found a rifle nearby, didn't shoot back. Instead, he tied it to his arm and crawled 300 yards to the aid station. Whew, what a story. I've saved Doss for last because, well, now that you've heard those other stories of missionaries and soldiers, I hope it puts Doss in context. Doss earned the Medal of Honor. He shook hands with the President of the United States. But he wasn't the only Avenus hero. Doss was singled out because what he did was conspicuous in an age where bravery was commonplace. Saving two or three or four soldiers while under fire, that was normal. Okay? In peacetime, man, you save one person from getting hit by a car. You save one person who had a heart attack in their home, right? Like, you're, you're amazing. You're a, you're a great citizen. You're a great neighbor. You're a great Christian. You're a great person. But in the war, saving four people in one engagement is just, it's what's expected of you. And so, even as we see Desmond Doss saving like 75 people, that is impressive. That's why he gets celebrated the way he gets celebrated, okay? He was doing, I hope we realize, he was doing what every other Avenus medic was doing, just on a, on a bigger scale because of the situation he was in. Desmond Doss was not unique. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It wasn't like, well, you know, every generation, one person is born who's capable of such bravery and hero. No, 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 no. And I think Doss would have been the first one to tell you there were plenty of other people in that war who would have, uh, who were saving lives, who were risking their own for the sake of each other. So hopefully when we put Desmond Doss's story in the context of what some of these missionaries and what some of these other Avenus soldiers in particular, okay, were, were doing, you realize there were a lot of heroes. There was a lot of self-sacrifice. There was a lot of personal risk going around. Yeah. Plenty of Avenus soldiers 
and missionaries were heroes during those years. And Carlisle B. Haynes, head of the church's War Service Commission, wanted to make sure that people knew it. Haynes regularly gave updates to church members about how soldiers were doing, sharing their stories, telling people who are about to be drafted, hey, make sure you check this box on the form, not this other one. You want to make sure you get this status, right? He was, he was invaluable in, in clearly communicating what people needed to do who are at home, who are getting ready to be drafted and shipped out. He was letting parents and other family members know, you know how things were going in camp such and such in Texas with the, with the Avenus boys there. And he was invaluable in letting people know what was going on overseas. About a thousand Adventists just from the state of Michigan were drafted, okay? And, and not knowing what's happening to them. This is, this is the role that the church leadership played during these years. It's kind of an interface between the government, which tended to be rather stingy with information, right? They had a lot on their plate. And it was the church's job to contact the State Department contact other relevant government agencies and say, hey, what's going on? I got a, we got a church member who's on this island. We haven't heard about him in a while. Can you give us some news about them? Right? They, they're they're uh, ringing the news out of the government and then transferring that information to, to the membership. So Haynes was writing a lot of articles. And he made this statement, which is worth reading at length. Quote, on all the battlefronts of earth, Seventh-day Adventist youth are present. They are there by the thousands. They do not participate in the fighting. They destroy no lives. They cause no injury. They do not kill, but they are where the killing takes place. It has been demonstrated again and again that no element of cowardice or fear enters into the stand taken by Seventh-day Adventists. They have not shunned danger. They ask to be placed where the danger is the greatest, where the casualties of war are most numerous, in the medical department. Where fighting soldiers go, they also go. Where the fighting soldiers go armed, these go entirely unarmed. It takes courage of a greater degree to go into battle unarmed. No question can arise regarding the supreme courage of the non-combatant soldier. End quote. Avenue soldiers who don't carry guns are braver than those who do? That's a bold statement. Haynes wants some respect for what it means to be a medic. And as we have seen, that respect was more than earned. I wanted to make sure to share the stories with you before I shared this statement from Haynes. Because I don't want it to be just theory, right? You know, we have it as we're brave too. It's like, no, I, I want you to see it. I want you to hear the story. Because those Avenus medics earned respect. The difficulty was not everybody at home knew what was going on. So there was a strategic, even evangelistic purpose to such statements. On the home front, it was pretty common to consider conscientious objectors or conscientious cooperators, as Doss preferred it, as sissies. They weren't brave. They were scared, hiding behind their little religious platitudes. They weren't in touch with the real world. I mean, come on. You, you claim you love your country. You claim you love your church. You claim you love your family. Then fight for it. Then defend it. Nuance is often the first casualty in war. Right? 
the, the view was you Avenus are either fighting alongside my son, protecting him, or you're not. As if these are the only two options in terms of defending the things you love. No doubt that many Avenus were told on the street that they weren't loyal enough or brave enough. And how do you respond to those people? Well, you carry an armload of newspaper clippings that prove them wrong. And that's why Carlisle B. Haynes shared these stories. That's why he made statements about the bravery of Seventh-day Adventist medics who were going overseas, because he wanted, he wanted the members of the church to be able to cut these things out. And when, when a neighbor, when somebody who doesn't understand Adventists very well questioned their patriotism, questioned their loyalty, questioned their courage, you could just pull these things out and say, let me tell you about Orville Cox. Let me tell you about Desmond Doss. Let me tell you about these people. And then we'll see if you still think we're scared. The focus on heroism also helped Adventists untangle themselves in the public imagination from other Christian groups with weird ways of looking at things, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, okay? Putting weird in quotes, right? The, the, the small Christian groups that people just kind of think are different, even if they don't know exactly what they believe, okay? Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses have been confused since forever, much to the annoyance of both, I would imagine. But during the Second World War, Adventists felt a new urgency to disambiguate themselves from their spiritual cousins. The Witnesses, by virtue of their complete unwillingness to honor the national symbols or join the military, were in constant trouble in America, as they were in Germany and many other places. Seven Jehovah's Witnesses in Pittsburgh were fired for refusing to participate in a flag-raising ceremony at the glass factory where they worked. Two unions, representing the workers, said that, quote, it would be impossible to control other employees who might seek to inflict physical injury on these men or might refuse to work with them, thus paving a way for a walkout or shutdown of the plant, end quote. This bit about not guaranteeing the safety of the witnesses was not an idle point. According to the American Civil Liberties Union, in a five-month span in 1940, in America, before America's involvement in the war even began, okay, over 1,600 witnesses were subjected to some kind of discrimination or violence across 44 states. Now, in this period of hyper-patriotism, it could be dangerous to be associated with the witnesses. And by that, I mean it could be dangerous to be seen as unpatriotic. It could be dangerous to be seen as uncooperative in the nation's struggle. So it's not hard to see why Haynes was eager to trumpet Adventist patriotism and bravery, even if the General Conference did in a religious liberty sense, sometimes support the rights of the Jehovah's Witnesses in court. The patriotism which Adventists felt was no doubt sincere. Don't get me wrong. Doss's patriotism, I mean, when you, when you watch his interviews, read the things he wrote, I mean, it was sincere. He loved his country. But the communication of this patriotism also had a purpose. And that purpose, one of those purposes was to differentiate Adventists from other groups like Jehovah's Witnesses. 
Avenus also ran ads in their papers for war bonds. This, too, was carefully staged. War bonds were a way of lending money to the government, which would be repaid with a little interest in 10 years or longer, usually longer, because, well, the last World War II war bonds stopped paying interest in 2010, okay? They weren't particularly great investments. I think the U.S. government raised like a couple of hundred billion dollars toward a war that cost something like $4 trillion. But it was helpful. So it was marketed as an attempt to fight inflation. Okay, Secular newspapers advertised war bonds with aggressive, violent slogans like, let's take Hitler to the cleaners. Another advertisement urged people to buy war bonds in order to send more planes, more tanks, more ammunition to those neighborhood boys you grew up with. And it really had a profound sentimental effect. I don't know if sentimental is the right word for it. But just put yourself in their shoes, right? It's your boy off to war. It's your nephew. It's your brother. It's that, it's that neighbor boy who's off to war. You know, the one who's always riding around on his bike, playing with your kids. And, and, and these war bonds are being advertised like, hey, don't let them go without a gun. Don't let them go without bullets. They need planes. They need, they need things in order to survive. And it's like, well, don't you want these boys to survive? Well, then buy war bonds and give them what they needed, right? That's how they're advertised in these newspapers. The Treasury Department ads in Avenith newspapers were far more sensitive. They told their readers that war bonds enabled soldiers to have things like shovels and pans, not tanks and planes. Knowing that most Avenists were in medical units, one advertisement even mentioned that war bonds enabled medical units to have enough hospital beds. I mean, who wants to think of somebody having to lay on the ground or on boxes or something, right, in the hospital? We want them to have beds. Come on. Of course, Avenists knew that their money was also being used to buy tanks and planes and guns and bullets, instruments of destruction. But as long as... They were being told that their money would go toward nonviolent pieces of equipment like shovels and pans. They didn't seem to mind. I mean, what kind of mother wanted their boy to go out half-dressed? Wanted them to cook without a pan? In one instance, the review reprinted an article written by the Treasury Department extolling the virtues of American government. No country, the article read, has done more for her people than ours. Right? Like appealing to that sense of you know, well, you've benefited so much. Pay it back. In fact, the, in fact, the Treasury Department was recommending 10% of your income go towards war bonds. Does that sound familiar to people who pay tithe? Right? Hasn't God blessed you so much that you can return a tenth to him? And here's the government with this article. No country has done more for her people than ours. Hasn't America blessed you? Can't she ask for a tenth? Yeah, Adventism had come a long way from her days of calling America a land of blood and slavery, hasn't she? And I don't say that too sarcastically, okay? Because there's an element of truth to that, that, uh, that people were, have benefited from living in this country. Some people did, at least. But, uh, yeah, Adventists fit in in other ways during these times, notably their socially conservative positions on race and gender. We're going to talk about race next time. But the war was opening up a lot of opportunities for women that they hadn't had before. 
As fighting men headed for North Africa and the Pacific, women were replacing them in aircraft factories, for instance. The 1943 Miss America was hailed for being a factory worker. Surely this shallow business about swimsuit competitions can be behind us, newspaper editors crooned. The new American woman is a worker. Avenus weren't so sure if that was a good idea. I mean, not that they liked the swimsuit competitions, but the worker thing. The editor of the review reminded his readers one time that, quote, no woman can afford to sacrifice her duty to her home in order to seek a career. Rather, he went on, as wife and mother, she is the queen of the home. She can find no greater career in all the world than this, end quote. Not every Avenus young woman accepted this as their fate. One young Avenus wrote a letter to the church's newspaper for youth and young adults called the Youth's Instructor, asking, quote, What future is there in denominational work for a young woman with executive ability, the talents which would qualify a man for an administrative or managerial position, end quote? The question is heartbreaking in its clarity because the author knows that the world was increasingly valuing a woman because of her talents. But would the church? Ah, this woman went on, quote, For those who aspire to be teachers or nurses or stenographers, the future is bright. But what of the others? Among them, some of the keenest and most richly talented Seventh-day Adventist young women. It seems to me that their longing to find work that will demand all that is in them is both natural and legitimate. No clear-thinking young person objects to beginning at the bottom and climbing up, but it is the knowledge that the place she may reach is decided not by her ability, but by the circumstances she is helpless to change that is disheartening, end quote. The answer that came was as predictable as it was, in hindsight, sanctimonious. To the young woman's question of why her gender should prevent her from being a leader in one of the church's great institutions, those 535 institutions that it boasted of. The reply was, quote, There is only one basis upon which I feel I should answer your question, and that is found in the words of 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17, Love not the world, end quote. Besides, the author went on, there were just too many people wanting to be a leader in the church. Jesus wanted us to be followers, said the author, who was, of course, a leader in the church. But none of this can throw me off of the scent of something that Carlisle B. Haynes said. Haynes's affirmation of the virtues of non-combatant troops is part of what sounds like a new vision for Adventists in the world. Because in another article, Haynes wrote about Adventists serving as medical soldiers who were, quote, engaged in ministering to human welfare. That, Haynes wrote, quote, is precisely what Seventh-day Adventists should be doing everywhere in the world. He wasn't done there either. Quote, Wherever there is violence and trouble in the world and the clamor of war and fighting arise, it is good to know that Seventh-day Adventists are serving humanity, engaged in the work which they are in the world to do. They are truly soldiers of mercy, soldiers of humanity, 
soldiers of Christ, end quote. That's how Haynes liked to conclude his reports about Adventist soldiers. And this is a breathtaking vision of Adventism's role in the world. Adventists are soldiers of humanity in the world. An Adventist history textbook from these years featured a chapter called, We Serve the World. It's an idea that was, in my opinion, never fully explored. What would it look like if the church had taken this vision seriously? If the church had taken this idea and let it survive the war? If the church was organized to be soldiers of humanity in addition to being soldiers of Christ? What would it look like if Adventists trained in diplomacy and crisis counseling had begged to be sent to the problem areas of the world to help resolve tensions? If the Adventist humanitarian mission had grown to rival the Red Cross, if Adventist churches were seen as safe, neutral places in gang-infested streets, John Harvey Kellogg had glimpsed the same possible future for Adventism when he was feeding and clothing and bathing and housing tens of thousands of poor Chicagoans back at the turn of the century. His own fate in the church buried that vision, only for it to arise, however fleetingly, during the Second World War. But the war ended, and the vision was lost sight of again. Part of the joy of studying Adventist history is finding these themes, these threads of what Adventism might have been. We tend to think that the church we have, the history we have, was the only inevitable course. It's the only truly Adventist course we could have taken, right? Because when we talk about history, when we talk about Adventist history, religious history, whatever, national history, we tend to focus on our the good guys and the bad guys, right? We, we avoided Canwright. We got rid of Kellogg and his panentheistic ideas. You know, we look at these people, Conradi, oh, we survived him. Got rid of the heretics, and thus we preserve the true faith. That, that tends to be how we look at it. It's as if the only true Adventist course is the one we took. If we would have gotten into peacemaking and helping the poor like Kellogg wanted, we somehow would have been less Adventist, right? But I don't think that's true. Nor are those the only two paths we might have taken. In fact, one might make a compelling case that if an Adventist hospital wouldn't have rejected a black Seventh-day Adventist patient purely for being black, we might have, in fact, been more authentically Adventist than we turned out. So yeah, next time, we're going to be talking about Lucy Byard. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist History content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, 
Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.